Well, good morning and Merry Christmas, and welcome to Calvary Chapel Crossfields Church. And it's been somewhat around 2,000 years since the Lord's birth, and we call it the Christmas season. People try to take Christ out of Christmas, and there's that whole discussion back and forth. Uh, but even among Christians, you know, what, how do we prepare for Christmas, right? Um, listen, some of it is God-honoring, some of it's commercialized, some of it, quite frankly, and you can look at different cultures, it's cultural. So I'll just give you two examples, if we can put up the image, of ways that people celebrate Christmas. <laughs> That's my nightmare, by the way. I know, I see some, I won't say too much, but some people shaking their heads like, no, I like that. <laughs> and it's worse inside the building. I'm like, babe, I, I really love you, but please don't drag me through the malls. But uh, So that's the one way we, people celebrate it. Uh, another way, if we can put that up. <laughs> so, you know, I remember growing up in a, a secular home, and when Christmas would come, all I could think about was the gifts. Uh, I didn't really understand the concept of Christ. I wasn't taught it. It wasn't really until my 20s that I really understand the reason for the season. But we do prepare many ways for this time of the year. But God was also preparing thousands of years prior. And when we understand that Christ came to the world to die for our sins so we could have life, we understand his preparations. So in the morning, or in this morning, what I'm going to do is go through some prophetic, um, probably about eight or nine prophecies. And then I'm going to kind of hit you with a book that was written uh, about picking any eight or nine prophecies and see really what the mathematical probability that any of these could come to pass. So we're going to jump in, and we're going to be in Luke 1, starting with verse 26. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And having come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice, highly favored one, the Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. But when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying, and considered what manner of greeting this was. See, we have to kind of go out of American culture or even Renaissance culture and go into really what the Bible says, because that's where we can find truth. It wasn't every day that somebody was vis visited by an angel and the angels were very powerful beings that did God's bidding. So she was a little concerned. So right off the bat, he wants to put her at ease. Then the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his, of his kingdom there will be no end. Even if you're part of a, a Christian denomination and you've partaken of communion, uh, a lot of people don't know this, but part of the communion celebration was Christ promised to his disciples not only to be resurrected, not only to spend those 40 days post-resurrection on the earth uh, after, and then ascending into heaven, but that he would come back a future fulfillment. So what you have is you have the wonderful things he's done, all right, dying for our sins, but also mixed in a future from our time fulfillment 
of his reign, which is going to be great. Then Mary said to the angel, how can this be? I do not know a man. And the angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore, also, that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. Now indeed, Elizabeth, your relative, also conceived the Son in her old age, and this is now the sixth month for her who was called barren. For with God, nothing will be impossible. Then Mary said, Behold, the maidservant of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. So this is, again, we look at God's preparation. How does, you know, listen, there's been prophets, or pretend prophets for thousands of years, coming around, hanging around, telling the people to follow them. A lot of them have been false prophets. So how do we know that this is true? Well, 700 years prior to this, in Isaiah 7.14, which we're going through on Sunday mornings, it says, quote, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign, What is a sign? It means it's something out of the ordinary. Pay attention to this. Remember, seven centuries prior. It's a long time. And he continues, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God is with us. Jesus had a lot of names or titles or really more character representations of who he was. Emmanuel was one of them. God is with us. Right? Yeshua, Jesus, Yehoshua, God is salvation. Right? Now, these prophecies were repeated over the years. And this is good for those of you that say, you know, I, I really want to get deeper into my faith. I want to understand. I don't even know how to defend my faith when people start asking me questions. Well, this is the way to do it. Um, the Greek Septuagint, which was a version of the scripture, very old manuscript, from the third, early 3rd third century B.C., where 70 Hebrew scholars translated the Hebrew to the Koine Greek, which everybody was speaking at the time, they were trying to bring monotheism, the only God, one God, to the polytheistic Greeks. So that's a, a very viable, very important translation that we have today. Like people think, you know, you, they, the ones that attack Christianity, oh, it's just been said over and over and it's like telephone. Has, that's not, has nothing to do with that. A lot of these manuscripts are in museums under guard. They're priceless because, you know, you only come about them every so often. It was also picked up in the Dead Sea Scrolls of the 2nd century B.C. Completely different set of scrolls, completely different part of the world. The Qumran Caves by the Dead Sea. Fascinating stuff. Now, in this, since someone argued, well, how do we know he's saying virgin because that's miraculous? And, And again, people will argue because they don't understand miracles. Well, when the, the Hebrew was translated Alma, the Hebrew, into Greek, they translated it Parthenos, which literally meant a, a virgin. Parthenia was virginity. So there you go. It's a sign. It's a miracle. Um, you, don't, you don't hear about this in your daily walk. Some, somebody who's a virgin says, I'm pregnant. You know, this doesn't happen. It, it was miraculous. We continue in Luke 1, starting with verse 39. It says, Now Mary arose in those days and went into the hill country with haste to a city of Judah and entered the house of Zacharias and greeted Elizabeth. And it happened when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the babe leaped in her womb and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. So Elizabeth is carrying John the Baptist. 
Then she spoke out with a loud voice and said, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. But why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For indeed, as soon as the voice of your greeting sounded in my ears, the babe leaped in my womb for joy. Blessed is he who believed, for there will be a fulfillment of those things which were told her from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. So both Elizabeth and Mary both knew that they needed a Savior. They understood the Scripture. They understood that humankind was born into, uh, well, put themselves into a sinful condition. And they believed what God said about the baby that Mary was carrying, that somehow God was going to do this miracle where it was going to be fully God and fully man. And even Mary is is amazed at who she's carrying. She says, she's already calling him my Lord. He didn't even become fully gestated yet. So we continue with that. Um, I think what's really, really cool is an image, or pretty much image four, is God miraculously brought two baby boys into the world for the purpose of winning back his prodigal children, sinners on planet Earth. Uh, You have Elizabeth, who is older and barren. A miracle was done there. And you also have Mary, who is a virgin, and a miracle was done there with Jesus Christ. These are two powerful figures that were going to come onto the earth that were going to shake things up. And even if you look at secular historians, they talk about the incredible situation with Jesus and John coming onto the scene and changing a lot of things. I was, uh, I was amazed because I don't watch TV a lot. I really don't because I just don't have the time. So I was kind of flipping through channels and I found a channel and maybe you could educate me when I come down from the pulpit, but you know, it just said Newsmax TV and it was about the Bible and I'm like, all right, here we go. <laughs> I'm going to start arguing with the television now. But I was amazed. They were... It wasn't a Christian show. They were completely objective. And they kept bringing the scripture into the situation and talking about the truth of the Bible. One commentator went so far as to say, if you even put the Bible aside and you look at all the sources, secular, religious, and you piece together Jesus from these sources, you can actually have the historical figure of Jesus that he existed. Whether it was Tacitus, whether it was Josephus, uh, Roman historians, whether it was Pliny the Younger, whether it was uh, the Talmud spoke about Jesus, the Quran spoke about Jesus. So he says you could even put the whole picture of Jesus together without even using the Bible. So the guy, they were saying it was real. Long story, but even the high priest Caiaphas, they found his ossuary in Jerusalem, um, the one who led the charge to have him crucified. Uh, they found, it's it just, there's a plethora of evidence. I have all these articles in my office, but If you want to wonder or question about, is your faith real, all you have to do is a little bit of research. And you'll find a lot of it comes from secular sources. It's impressive. We continue on. Luke Luke 1, starting with verse 15, speaking about John the Baptist coming in the spirit of Elijah. And it says this, Luke 1, 15, For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink, He will also be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. Now he had a very different uh, modus operandi than Jesus, and we'll talk about that. He will also go before him, before Jesus, in the spirit and power of Elijah, Elijah the prophet, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just 
to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Now, this is quoted from Malachi, which is another prophet. Again, some four centuries. Think about a century, a hundred years. Think about how many hundreds of years these prophecies are that in the time of Christ, they all just came to life. Powerful. In addition, Malachi 3.1, God said, Behold, I will send my messenger, meaning John, and he will prepare the way before me. Again, what's so significant? Well, in the first century, I mean, think about Roman crucifixion. Uh, The Persians started impaling people. They perfected this crucifixion method. And then uh, they had the Greeks and then the Romans. And the Romans uh, actually perfected this form of torture to get people to confess. And um, they would litter sometimes the highways to deter people from messing with Rome. How sick mankind had become, finding new and exciting ways to harm each other. Uh, Close quarters combat, the type of warfare they did. You could see your enemy face to face while you were hacking off parts of his body, not to be too gross, gross this morning. But So Jesus comes at this time, John the Baptist comes at this time preaching about God, about his love, about how abhorrent society had become, about how we had sinned and we needed to repent. It's a great message. It's a great message. There is a, a place for fire and brimstone teaching. Uh, it's amazing. Malachi speaks about John coming in the power of Elijah. John comes And what does he do? He softens the hearts of the people. They start now looking inward at their sin, and they they realize as they look up that they've really fallen short. He criticized the soldiers. He criticized the the religious system, how corrupt they had become, the politicians. You wonder why they had John beheaded, right? But he softened their hearts, and Jesus came with this repentance, and he gave them the way out to save their souls, you know? Sometimes when we talk about salvation, people just have a hard attitude. They don't even know, what are you talking about? I don't need to be saved. I'm fine. Everything's fine in my life. I haven't killed anybody. But you have to kind of express to them what the Bible says about how we've sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So it's like an exposed, then an expunged principle. It really works nice. Then there's, there's repentance, there's forgiveness, there's full restoration with the living God. Wonderful. Continuing on, Matthew 1, starting with verse 18. And I took, again, chronologically, because this is easier to follow that way. Matthew 1, 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to to Joseph. That's kind of between, uh, betrothal is kind of between what we would understand as our um, uh, engagement period. And, and a wedding. Betrothal was like an intense engagement period. You know, different culture, but you were pretty much considered you're going to be married soon. Um, there was no looking around anymore. There was no... So follow me here. <laughs> so Joseph, <laughs> uh, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man, he's a good guy, probably hurt, not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. He didn't want this. How could you do this to me? But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins." 
Now all of this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took to him his wife and did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son and he called his name Jesus. Is this pretty much sounding familiar to you? James was our angel in the live nativity. <laughs> did a great job. So, uh, <laughs> and you can see it on the, on the website. Uh, but, but Joseph is, you know, he needs a little bit of convincing. You know, he's really having a problem with this whole thing. Uh, you know, and some people think, well, this is like some fairy tale, the Bible. And usually when I hear people say that, they haven't read the Bible. Because honestly, Gabriel was probably punching in, in clock, his overtime clock, because God was sending him everywhere because he had a lot of work to do. He had a lot of convincing to do, right? Everybody involved had to understand this great plan that God was uh, preparing, and he had to get everybody on board. And the beautiful thing about this is when you read about the, the characters in the Bible, you can look at yourself and say, gee, if God could use them, he could use me. Sometimes church today has become uh, performance-oriented, and then you have the congregation as seekers or spectators. But church is really that everybody gets on board and tries to achieve the same goal. We work together. So when we go into the scripture, it kind of dispels some of our cultural myths uh, and our mores that we follow. But I, I'm going to throw this out there. One of the biggest hindrances I've seen talking to people that say, you know, I, I want to be used by God, but they get down on themselves. You know, but I'm involved in this right now, but I'm not worthy. Okay, well, neither is anybody. You know, we're all on the same level. So if that's what you're thinking, I got to get right. Right? I have a, a, a friend in the back that knew me before I was a Christian. Uh, if I had to get right before becoming a Christian, I would have never become a Christian. You know, if I had to become perfect before becoming a pastor, that would have never happened either. So, you know, God used flawed people. It's pretty neat. One of my goals during, and here it comes, <laughs> one of my goals during Christmas and Easter is to get the people that come rarely to be inspired. You know, I'm not, I say this as an encouragement, not as a dig. To hear about God and to hear about how amazing he is and how perfect and scientific and orchestrated and loving and, and universal in his appeal to get those people to say, you know, I, I probably would like to start coming to church more. I probably need to start praying more. I'd like to start reading more. Because I think once you understand, especially the Christmas story or the story of the resurrection, how can that not inspire us? We continue on in Luke 2. Luke 2, 1 through 7. It says, And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, into Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. There's a problem. The population has grown since then. Right? No room at the inn. Verse 6, So it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered, and she brought 
forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them at the inn. This is uh, extremely humbling because, you know, God brings, he, he reaches out to the shepherds, which we'll get to. The shepherds were kind of like the fringe of society. They were the outcasts. Um, they weren't really welcome to parties and such. They, weren't, they didn't rub elbows with the important people. Um, you know, here we are, the, the, the Messiah is going to be born, and he's born in a feeding trough, which what, is what a manger is. And if you ever worked with livestock, if you ever worked with... How'd that get up there? <laughs> I think they're twins. My wife rescues horses, so um, I don't think I've ever been so dirty in my life. Um, I actually had some carrots, and he was over my shoulder trying to get at the carrots. And by the time I left there, uh, he's, he's my baby, I had like just food all over me, and they, they slobber on you. And so when you talk about like animals and domesticated animals, um, to put the Messiah into this world, to have this trough made of, of wood, and all the animals feed in it, and to him, him to be laid down, he really did come humbly into the world. Now, this was no mistake. It wasn't like God forgot to go on Travago and book a hotel or something like that. I mean, this is all orchestrated. This is done exactly the way it's supposed to be. And here's the thing. You know, I've, <laughs> two, two types, like, there's, every, there's a lot of people in the middle, and then you got your extremes. You got the one that I talked about who feels they're not worthy. They feel that they won't be accepted. They're maybe like the shepherds. And they don't come because they just feel humiliated about themselves. And on the other end of the spectrum, you have those that uh, just their own self-importance is so, they're so self-aggrandized. And Jesus really tried to win both sides and, of course, everybody in the middle. His appeal was incredibly universal and it was very effective. But there was this census, not unusual, the Romans, the Greeks, they, there's still records about the Romans and the Greeks. They did some things in their form of government and representative government. It's very interesting. But if you go back to Micah, which is the 8th century B.C., right? it says this, but you, Bethlehem. Now, this was a little town, and there were two Bethlehems. So God's just making sure everybody understands it's the little Bethlehem, little house of bread. Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from old or from everlasting, or really what that means is from eternity. So, and I've said this before, God does this amazing thing where he places these insurmountable odds against himself, and he says, watch how I do this. And it's really for us to see I'm going to get into that too. Uh, it's, it's almost, a lot of these things are statistical and mathematical improbabilities. And when you get like 1 times 10 to the 17 or 1 times 10 to the, there's a certain number where there's so many zeros after the 1 where a statistician will say this is an impossibility. I'm going to get to that. We continue. Uh, Genesis 49.10. i got to go really far back to get to this scripture. It's a 4,000-year-old prophecy, roughly three to 4,000 years old, speaking about the bloodline the Messiah would come in, Judah, and the political situation in Rome in the first century. And it says, quote, the scepter, or the ability for the Jewish people to carry on day-to-day 
um, you know, to make judicial decisions, jurisprudence, even over life and death. Very interesting thing happened in the first century. Uh, the ones that wanted to crucify Jesus had to get permission. Before, well, I'll get to that. Uh, the scepter shall not depart from Judah nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh, which was a euphemism for the Messiah, comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the people. Now, a situation happened in, in Rome where Herod Archelaus, son of Her- Herod the Great, one of his many progeny, uh, he was ruling over the Jewish people. He was ruling over Judea. And he just made a mess out of everything. And the Romans finally just banished him to Gaul. They deposed him. Get Archelaus out of there. Was he a puppet Jewish leader? Yeah, but at least he had some, some ties. The Romans did something very interesting. They pretty much let the Jews and other countries kind of run themselves and kind of be vassals. Pay us tribute money, blah, blah, blah. So in this, just before, as Jesus was growing up, uh, Herod Archelaus was deposed by the Romans, and a man named Capanius, the procurator, came in, completely Roman. He comes in, and then, of course, we see later on Pontius Pilate. You look in your, was it the Pilate Stone in Caesarea by Italian archaeologists, was found in 1961. It has the whole inscription of, of Pontius Pilate. Um, man, just I'm, <laughs> a, lot of good, a lot of good historical stuff, archaeological stuff, but basically... This was the time when the scepter was removed from Judah. But Shiloh had come. He was already there living among them. There's a lot more to it. It's fascinating. Uh, in, in continuing on, Luke 2, starting with verse 8, right, we're, we're moving forward in time here. It says, Now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be the sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling cloths lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. So it was when the angels had gone away from them into heaven that the shepherds said to one another, Let us now go to Bethlehem and see how this thing has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. Now when they had seen him, they made widely known the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all those who heard it marveled at those things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. Then the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen as it was told them. So the angels appeared to the shepherds. Pretty impressive. Uh, when Jesus walked the earth, he had a lot of followers, and he had people that uh, were former tax collectors, former thieves, uh, some rough fishermen, some sinners, admitted sinners, uh, and they, you know, former prostitutes, and they followed him, right? They, they, there was something different about him. He gave them hope. He was a living embodiment of hope for anybody who had done anything, Okay. Matthew 2, moving on to the, the wise men. 
Matthew 2, starting with verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard these things, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and the scribes and the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search diligently for the young child. And when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. And when they heard the king, they departed. And behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Then, being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. um, I won't take too much time on it, but... I had covered this before. There's a program. I don't know if any of you are familiar with the program, computer program called Starry Night. Well, you should look it up. <laughs> I'm not advertising it. I'm not getting any kickbacks. I just heard about it, and I checked it out, and I'm like, well, this is, I don't actually have it. But it's really interesting. It's a software program um, because of the laws of Copernicus and Newton, right? Those guys are pretty cool, um, telling us about planetary motion and all that kind of stuff you can actually punch the year, whatever year it is, into the computer, put in your geographical coordinates where you want to see the night sky from, and you put it into this program, and it will tell you based on, again, the laws of planetary motion, it goes backwards, and it shows you what the night sky looked like. And you can actually see this. So you had Venus, Jupiter, and Regulus in a very odd motion pattern. Um, you know, when you look at the planets, they don't completely uh, revolve around the sun or whichever galaxy we're talking about in a perfect pattern. It's usually an elliptical pattern. So when you have a lot of planets going in an elliptical pattern, what you get is called retrograde motion. So you can actually be standing there and look at something seemingly move and then stop for a long time. And again, it's, I'd have to do it on the screen. Some of you are very familiar with retrograde motion. Um, it could even reverse. It could seem to come closer. Either way, God knew this was going to happen. And he brought the Magi to the Christ child. They, they, this, this, the heavenly body was glowing and stood over the house. And they said, oh, this is where it must be. So it's actually pretty fascinating when you think about it. A lot of good stuff here. You know what I find that... When Darwin came into the world with his theories, um, and it was before World War II, um, and then sometime later World War II, it really took the focus off of, I think Christians kind of lost their ability 
And, and I, I see stuff happen and people say, oh, I, I found the evidence that's going to disprove Christianity. I'm like, I can't wait to see the evidence so I can investigate it myself. I don't want to follow something that's not true. But uh, people, Christians need to do a better job understanding why they believe what they believe and be able to defend it to convince others about the truth so that they could be saved as well. And that's the bottom line. Christ sends us out into the world to, be, to, um, to radiate Christ, right? and to bring the message of hope to a dead and dying world. If you don't think this is a dead and dying world, just when you go home, go on the Internet and look at any of the news sources. Bad news after bad news after bad news. And it's only getting worse. Um, last one for this, eve- or this morning. Uh, Daniel 9.25. Daniel 9.25. Now, this was written some 500 years B.C. And I'm, I'm rounding off, okay, whatever, 520, 530. I don't want to throw out all these crazy numbers, but 500 years prior to the event taking place. And it says this, right? You know what I love? Gabriel's, Gabriel is such a busy angel that this was Gabriel again. <laughs> God made, an, and that, that's another fascinating discussion. God made an order of beings before he made us, uh, these angelic beings that seem to be, they have like an eternal status. So Gabriel's been around for a long time. And back here, Gabriel was at work. And it's almost like he had the, the specific project of, he, he had the Messiah project. So going back 500 years before the Roman times, uh, he's talking to Daniel, and Daniel is writing these prophecies. And it says this in Daniel 9.25, Know therefore and understand. Know it and understand it. That from the going forth of the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, Jerusalem, by the way, was in shambles because of the Babylonians at this time, until Messiah, the prince, there shall be seven weeks, or Shavuah in the Hebrew, which we have a decade as ten years. Shavuah means seven. These sevens were a seven-year period. Uh, and 62 Shavuah, the street shall be built again, and the wall even in troublesome times. Now, at the time Daniel writes this, He's under the domination of the Persian Empire. Now, if you again go into your secular encyclopedias, look up Persian kings. There was a guy in 445 BC named Artaxerxes Longimanus who actually was gracious to the Jewish people. He sends them back to do exactly what the scripture says. And when they would make a decree, it could, the Medes and the, and the Persians could not be altered. It was set in stone, literally. All right, for everybody to see this law. So he sends them back in 445 B.C. If you count 69 Shavuah, or 493 years, no, uh, seven, four, yeah, 483 years. Can somebody help me? I got all this stuff in my head. Whatever, it's 7 times 62. 7 times 493, yeah. All right, Shabuas. So multiply that by seven. I'm sorry, on, on Christmas morning, I'm doing this to you. You get roughly, for the elliptical pattern, the Babylonian calendar at the time, you get 173,880 days. If you count the time that, now, you count those days, that's a long time, that Artaxerxes makes the decree, and the clock, clock the prophetic clock starts ticking. When you get to 173,880, you get to the time of Romans, and you get into the triumphal entry. Remember, Jesus would often say in the Gospels, it's not my time, it's not my time. He knew the prophecies. So he, 
You know, this, you can fake a lot of things, and I've said this. It's really hard to fake who your parents are, who you're going to be born to, where you're going to be born, what line you're going to cut. That's impossible. This is definitely a God thing. So there was one time in history, in Jesus' ministry, where he said, okay, now you can, you can, I am the Messiah, and if you try to keep these people quiet, the rocks will cry out. He's the king. So the triumphal entry. Not long after that, he died, not a failure. He knew he had to die for our sins. So very, very intricate stuff. I love it. It's amazing. Um, and then lastly, oh, I forgot one thing. forgot one thing. So I looked at a few, I mean, I, didn't, I, can't, I can't count all these things, but uh, one particular website actually has a, uh, a list of every prophecy in fragments. So one verse might have two fragments in it. And they counted 353 prophecies fulfilled in Jesus Christ. That's powerful, according to the scriptures, the website is. In Isaiah alone, there's 130 fragments, which is what we're going through on Sundays. Let's talk about odds of, of eight of these prophecies out of the 353. Let's talk about eight being fulfilled. Very small percentage of 353, which is it's actually less than 1%. So Peter Stoner was a man who was chairman of the Department of Mathematics and Astronomy in Pasadena City College. He also was the chairman of science in Westmont College. He also was the co-founder of the American Scientific Affiliation. Peter Stoner wrote a book with Robert Newman, uh, and it was called Science Speaks. And the odds of fulfilling eight, just eight, we, we went through eight or nine, is one, it's one it would be only 1 in 10 to the 17. That's 17 zeros. Okay, let's talk about mathematical probabilities. I'm, probably, I'm trying to be, I would promise to try to be brief. When I was at Rutgers, when I went to college, I actually took a course, and I signed up for it. And you know how, like, you know, you, you, I was in engineering, and I'm like, I need an easy course. I think it's going to be an easy course. You know how you do that, college kids? Come on. I did the same thing. Oh, this looks like fun. You know, what's the odds of getting struck by lightning? It was a hard course. But mathematics, probabilities, and statistics. And it really, it was, it was fascinating. You know that when the, the government or the lottery commission, um, and again, I don't play the lottery, but I know people who do. I don't, is the pick six still around? I don't know. Why isn't, why isn't it the pick 15? Because, because there's, a, there's, a, there's a person who does statistics and counts the beans. And they say, well, if it's the pick 10, no one's going to win this because the probabilities are so great, it goes outside the realm of plausibility. So what they do is they find a number that people can win, but it doesn't break the bank. You can win the pick five, the pick four, um, but they don't make it any higher than six. Interesting, isn't it? When you go down to the casinos, they also have bean counters, right? They got these men and women, very highly intelligent. And when they set these games up, again, if nobody wins, no one's going to go to the casinos. You have to make the probabilities to the point where somebody wins once in a while and they, they yell and scream and everybody looks and goes, maybe that could be me next. But they make it so hard that you don't break the bank. These numbers, 1 in 10 to the 17, are so out of the realm of plausibility that you have a better chance of getting struck by lightning every day. Think about that, Christians. Know why you believe what you believe. Jesus fulfilled stuff that he could never have done being an embryo. Not possible. 
So I want to encourage you, get to know your faith more. Get to know the God behind that faith. The God who beat all the odds to send his son into the world to die for your sins and mine. And I'm grateful for that. So John 3.16, how did God prepare for Christmas? Very simple. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. That's whosoever. And this, one of these images that you see there, it's a very popular print where uh, the man is, he's got the, um, I think, yeah, he's got the hammer and he's got a nail in his hand and Jesus is holding up and you see like blood on the floor. That's us. We put Christ on the cross because, because of the sin of mankind, your sin, my sin, we could never do it on our own. Right? And here you have Jesus holding it. It's just what a, a powerful picture, imagery it presents. You know, so what is the reason for the season? Well, the reason for the season is Jesus Christ. Not all the other things that we do in our culture. And listen, I don't judge anybody, but we have to understand and put things in perspective. From the little eight-year-old kid, 10-year-old kid that I was, not knowing the Lord, all I could think of was Santa Claus and presents. Uh, now knowing the truth, I have a much richer appreciation for this time of the year because of what Jesus did for me. So God did a lot of preparation for Christmas, and the question is, how will you respond? Let's pray.